0: All right. Thanks for being here this morning. You're going to make your way back to your seats, finish saying hello. If you have a copy of God's Word, take it out and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look today at Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, and chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to look at these two verses together where Jesus is ending one section of the Sermon on the Mount and he's transitioning us into a new section. So let's read God's Word you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. God, would you help us this morning understand your word? We want to set our eyes on it. We want to meditate on it. We want to store it up in our hearts that we wouldn't sin against you, that we wouldn't turn our back on you, that we would follow you and love you more deeply today because of what you've written. So change us, transform us, make us different from the inside out, and help us to be better followers of Jesus because of this text, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is Father's Day, and it's fitting that it's Father's Day because we're looking at two verses today, both of which mention God as Father, Jesus is ending a section of the Sermon on the Mount where, if you'll bear with me for a second to replay where we've been. We looked at the Beatitudes, and then we transitioned out of the Beatitudes. Emory preached a message on being salt and light, where essentially Jesus is saying, if you're becoming this kind of person in the Beatitudes, then you're going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And then Jesus says, look, you need to live a certain way. You need to understand that you need a greater righteousness than the religious leaders you see. They have pretty weak righteousness. It's only external. They're not really that way on the inside. They just appear to be that way on the outside. Actually, you need to be changed from the inside out. And we've spent the last several weeks looking at Jesus saying, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you over and over and over. So now he's coming to the end and verse 48 is actually kind of a summary of all that came before it. So if you look at uh, Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 to 20 as the intro and the first bookend and then Matthew chapter 5 verse 48 as kind of the final bookend where he's concluding and wrapping up this thought here in chapter 5. So what is the greater righteousness that Jesus expects of us and invites us into? Nothing short of what he calls perfection. Perfection. Is that encouraging or is that discouraging this morning? I hope after we look at this, we'll find it very encouraging. But then he turns the page, and sometimes what's not very helpful for us are our chapter and verse divisions. But remember, this is all one text. Jesus didn't say end of a chapter, and like Al said in so many meetings, okay, new page, new paragraph. That's not what Jesus did when he was talking here. He kept right on flowing through his Sermon on the Mount, and that's why we're going to look at both of these verses together, even though they fall in different chapters. I think what we're going to see in these two verses is that Jesus invites us to belong to God's family. And you know, I'll be honest, I, I didn't come into this week thinking that was the theme of these two verses or even thinking that family was much of a theme in the Sermon on the Mount at all. But when I was looking at these two verses over and over this week, I couldn't help but get away from the fact that Jesus in both verses refers to God as our Father in heaven. And when we see Jesus do that, we have to acknowledge that he is calling us to belong to a family. Family. And this morning, we'll see two primary ways, one from each verse that Jesus invites us to belong to God's family. First, we'll look at what it means to bear the family resemblance. Then we'll look at chapter six, verse one, and see what it means to be blessed with the family inheritance. So first, bearing the family resemblance. Chapter 5, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is probably riffing off of an Old Testament, very common verse found a few different times in the first five books of the Bible. I think the first place it shows up is Leviticus. You shall be holy because I am holy. But Jesus doesn't use the word holy right here, not because he doesn't mean holy, But probably because the people he was speaking against, the scribes and Pharisees, had so misused the word holy that he didn't want his followers to get too wrapped up in the way the scribes and Pharisees were using that word. So Jesus substitutes another word here that my version, the ESV says, perfect. Teleos. Now, when we read this word, perfect, we have certain things come to mind. Like, no moral imperfection at all. We think of moral perfection. That was certainly included in this word, but it has so much richer of a meaning than that. In fact, this word shows up in the New Testament a few different places. Sometimes it's translated perfect, but one interesting translation that I love is in Ephesians 4.13 and Colossians 1.28, this word shows up in our English Bibles as the word mature. In Ephesians 4:13, Paul is talking about the ministry of the church to build up the body of Christ to mature manhood. Here it is, same word. In Colossians 1:28, Paul's talking about his own ministry and he says, "Him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ." This word's translated twice as mature, and even a few other places translated as mature. And so when we read the word perfect, we need to understand Jesus was not speaking in English, using words exactly as they meant today. He was speaking in the first century in another language. So this word perfect could also mean something like mature or whole, lacking nothing, full grown, I think we find the same idea embodied in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul is praying for the church at Philippi, and he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this. This is one of those times Paul is writing a prayer, and the way he uses pronouns is confusing. Because you go, wait a minute, he's he's talking to God, but he's praying and he's talking to you too. And so I remember when we preached through Ephesians a number of years ago, Al and I said, it's kind of like he's praying while he's looking at you. And he's looking at you in the eye and he's praying. And so he's praying to God, thank God for my remembrance of you. And he says, I'm sure of this. I'm sure of this, that he will bring to completion the good work that he started in you. He's gonna bring it to completion. The root word there is the same as the root word for this word, perfect. God is going to complete us. He's gonna make us full grown and mature. And so in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus is saying, you must be whole, mature, full grown in your faith, in your following of Jesus. What we're going to see in chapter six as we continue on is Jesus is going to take some shots at what he calls the hypocrites, hypocrisy. And this word, when it was used, was originally used to talk about people who acted in plays, people who were pretending to be something that they weren't. And we see in, in chapter six, when Jesus is talking about giving and praying and fasting, he says explicitly, don't be like the hypocrites, don't be like those people who pretend to be something that they're really not. Because those people are not whole. Those people are actually shallow. Those people who pretend to be something on the, on the outside, externally, uh, they're pretending to be a certain kind of way. But when you get under the surface, they're hollow. That's not who they really are. That's quite the opposite of the word perfect that Jesus uses, isn't it? If perfect means whole and complete and full... Maybe hypocrisy is quite the opposite of the vision Jesus is giving us in 548. So he uses this word perfect, which I'll admit can be quite off-putting, especially being in the South. I grew up around here, and especially the opinions people can have of church people, you just think you're perfect, don't you? And I've had that charge thrown at me. As you try to pour into people and love people and hold people to a a standard of following Jesus. Sometimes people in immaturity can say, well, what do you think? You're perfect? No, I I don't. I I know I'm not perfect. That's part of why this verse in Matthew chapter 5 is so difficult. You therefore must be perfect. Let's take a look around the room and just acknowledge none of us are. So what do we do with this? I think we've got to finish the verse. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now we could take an aside and uh, I did go to, to a seminary and I was not on campus long, but a lot of the churches around the seminary campus were filled with seminary students and you could always tell if a seminary student was preaching because it would essentially be a theological lecture and not much preaching. You could tell he'd been holed up in a dorm room with other seminary students for a little bit too long. He would talk with uh, too many syllables, too many words nobody understood. But it'd be seminary students out listening, so they'd be amening. And if you weren't a seminary student and you happened to stroll into some of these churches sometimes, you'd be totally lost. Now, we could take a minute and talk about the fact that our Heavenly Father is perfect well, we could say he's perfect as in he has no imperfections. He is morally perfect and pure and righteous. He is the standard. He is a being greater than which nothing exists, how our medieval Christian brothers and sisters would describe him. But then we could also take this word that means mature, whole, lacking nothing. He is whole. And we could talk about the divine attribute of God's simplicity. What that means is God's not complex, made up of a bunch of little parts, as if you could pull his grace out and pull his holiness out and pull his judgment out. As one of my professors says, God always acts in the full orchestra of his being. He never takes out an attribute and puts it on the shelf so then he can act in judgment. And then he never takes his love back and then begins to act in that. We can say all of these wonderful things about God, but I think the point of what Jesus is saying here is that the standard that we're called to is to bear the resemblance of the one we belong to. Jesus does not intend for this to be uh, pointing to some big theological point. Although I think it can point to that, and it does point to that. But what Jesus is saying is, your standard of perfection, of wholeness, of maturity, that I'm calling you to in your discipleship, you your following me, is the standard that you would look like the Father who loves you. That you would look like the Father who loves you. This is the very essence of adoption that you belong before you bear the family resemblance. Sometimes you belong without ever bearing family resemblance on the surface. But when adoption happens, there becomes a family resemblance on the things that are unseen, the culture, the way of talking and speaking and the things you enjoy to do and the places you Go on vacation, and the things you uh, wanna watch on TV, there begins to be this family resemblance of things that are unseen. And as I was preparing this, I, uh, when I was a kid, I was probably too young to go watch this movie, but I remember when it came out in theaters, my best friend and his mom took me and him to go see Remember the Titans. And I mean, classic. I grew up playing football, and I mean, if, if you played football and didn't watch Remember the Titans, you didn't have much motivation. I mean, it, was a cl- it is a classic Hell Washington football movie. But there's a, there's a part at the end of Remember the Titans. It, it's about uh, in the early 70s in Virginia, this high school that integrates, and it focuses on the football team. As it integrates with a, a white high school and a black high school, and what does it look like for this team to come together and the animosity that exists there? And it kind of focuses on one of the main kind of leaders from each group, Julius and Gary, and they both play defense, and they lock heads and horns over and over in the movie, and Julius challenges Gary's leadership, and they challenge each other's work ethic, but what happens is as the season goes on, these two guys form an incredible brotherhood together. They form an incredible friendship, and then at the end of the movie, you've had 20 years to watch it, so I'm just gonna keep on moving, Gary gets... He gets in a car wreck right before the state championship game, and he's paralyzed. And he's in the hospital, and he's, no one's seen him. The team's there, but only his, his mom has seen him. And, and they've told the coach, hey, he, he's, he's not going to walk again. And his mom says... Julius, he don't want to see anybody but you. And if you think about this moment in the movie, the reason that's so powerful is because the racism that Gary has, he's gotten from his mother. His mother didn't like people that didn't look like them. But his mother says, "Julius, he don't want to see anybody but you." So Julius walks in the hospital room, and the nurse is standing there and says, "I'm sorry, it's only Ken at this time." And Gary's laying there bandaged up. What are you blind, Alice?" "That's my brother. Don't you see the family resemblance? I think part of the reason re-watching that this week that hit me is because I, I thought about my own kids that don't look like me. None of them have my DNA. But I pray to God that I live a life of family resemblance that they wanna emulate. That even though our skin and our eyes and our hair's not gonna look the same, our heights could be wildly different, and they don't have my DNA or my bloodline, I pray that I live a life worthy of being emulated. That one day they would say, yeah, I have the family resemblance. Not of the way my dad naturally is and his natural character, but something that God did in him. And now, yeah, I pray that that's in me too. And that is what Jesus is inviting us to in verse 48. He's saying, look, the standard of righteousness that you're being held to is not a list of laws, it's a father. So if you're here this morning and you're wondering, what's church all about? I've heard it's about a lot of rules. Maybe you've been coming here, you've been in church your whole life and you still think church is about a lot of rules and I gotta figure out all the things to do and the ways to behave and the ways to belong. What Jesus is saying right here is there are ways of being, there are ways of belonging, there are ways that Jesus is shaping and forming us. But it's not for you to memorize every rule, every law, every, as Jesus says, jot and tittle of the law. But Jesus says the standard to which you're being formed and shaped is your Father. And the good news of the gospel is that you belong before you become. God's not watching you to make sure you become before he invites you to belong to his family. How cruel would that be to do to a child that you want to adopt and say, I'm not going to adopt you. I'm going to bring you in and I'm going to see if you can measure up first. I'm going to see if you can get a hang, get the hang of what it means to belong to this family. And if you can, we'll go through the adoption process. But if not, you're going to be right back out. That would be so cruel and that is Precisely the opposite of what our Father does. He brings us in bearing zero family resemblance. I mean, a microscopic cosm of His image remains on us and He wants to blow those embers back in and say, you belong to me. Come to me and I am gonna transform you. I am gonna make you perfect, whole, mature, full-grown And we see this in Jesus, don't we? He's the only one who perfectly reflects God's glory. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. He fully reflects the glory of God. And that's why we call discipleship following Jesus. I appreciate and understand and hope we talk about obedience. But I think we need to understand where obedience falls and why we obey. We obey because God loves us, not in order to get him to love us. But discipleship is following Jesus and it's being formed to the image of Jesus because Jesus wants us to be whole, mature, and full grown. He wants us, he's inviting us to bear the family resemblance. And as we turn the page, literally in my Bible, to chapter 6, We read verse one Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And this point, in this verse, we see what it means to be blessed with the family inheritance. Jesus actually starts this off with a warning Beware of practicing your righteousness, of living out the ways of following Jesus, or pretending you're following Jesus, or pretending your righteousness. In before other people in order to be seen by them. He says it right in that first part of the verse that the motive of these kind of people he's warning against is to be seen and noticed by other people. This falls exactly in line with what we've been talking about a lot at Shalford with the curated life. That is exactly what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is pretending to be something that you're not. And when we live a life in order to be seen and approved by others, we feel the need to control what others see. So we don't just want to be seen by others as we truly are. We fear that. We want to be seen by others in such a light that they would approve of us. They would love us. They would know the parts of us we're willing to present, and they would accept the ends. And in this case, in Matthew chapter 6, he's talking about spiritually curating your life. Not just living a curated life according to the world. But living a curated life within the family of God. Hey, beware if you're coming to church and you're worshiping in order to be seen by other people, if you're praying in order to be seen by other people, if you're giving in order to be seen by other people. Hey, beware if your spiritual life is crafted and curated to gain approval from others. Beware of that, Jesus says. Why does he say be aware of that? Because you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. One of the themes that we'll see through these next 18 verses is what he constantly says for the people who live like that is they've already received their reward. God believes in something called natural consequences. You wanted the pleasure of people accepting you. That's what you lived for. I'll give it to you. Just know that it won't last. And then what we see in verses 19 to 24 in chapter 6 is this call to not lay up treasures that are going to rust and be destroyed, but lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is inviting us to live in a way where we're not just wanting to be seen by people but we're living in a way where we want to be seen by one, and that is our heavenly Father. Now, I've got to acknowledge the tension here because you might be thinking, wait a minute, in chapter five, he says, let your good works be seen by others that they may give glory to your Father in heaven. And now he's saying, don't live in order to be seen by others. And I think it doesn't take a lot of reasoning to understand what he's trying to say. It's the motivation. If you're living unto the Lord for the glory of God that he would see you and others see your works, when that's your motivation, they're going to be drawn to God. But if you're living in order to be seen by others, they're going to be drawn to you and they're not going to be drawn to God. They're going to be drawn to you to stick to you. What he's saying here is that we ought to be God-centered in our living. We're being formed to the image of God. He is the standard to which Jesus is shaping us in our discipleship. It is his glory that we're living for, not our own glory. We want to receive a reward from him, not those who are watching us. This is is extremely, extremely challenging because we see people every day, right? And part of the temptation of this curated life, this this life that we want to present, this false image of who we want people to think we are, is that that can get you instantaneous acceptance, which is really what we're longing for. And it's part of the reason we do that is because we fear if anybody sees us as we really are, they might not accept us. They might not love us. So I've got to maintain this image that's acceptable. I've got to maintain this level of righteousness that the church is going to look at and give me a thumbs up, that uh, people who follow me are going to give me a thumbs up, my friends are going to give me a thumbs up. I've got to present what's presentable and hide what's undesirable. But when we live to be seen by one, by God, that actually brings incredible freedom because as Psalm 103.14 says, he remembers our frame And he knows that we're dust. There's no fooling God with a carefully crafted image of who you're pretending to be. You might fool all of us. You might fool every social media friend and follower you have. You might fool every family member you have. You might fool every friend you have. But you will never fool God. He knows you, He knows you're just dust. And the image you want to present, that's acceptable. Acting like you, you have it together. Your righteousness is together. You give enough and you don't sin much and you pray often. God knows. Justin and I were talking a couple weeks ago before he preached. And we were talking about the process of preparing to preach. And I told him one of the scariest things about preaching is you can get up here and none of you know how much we prayed before we did this. And then what gets even scarier is the more you do this, the more you realize how easy it is to do this in your own strength, in your own flesh. You can have a process and you can read other people who have done good work on the text and you can get up here with a talk that I didn't pray at all and present to you. And you don't know. You could even ask me and I could give you an answer and you still might not fully know how much Justin or I or Lynn or Emery or Matthew pray before we do this. But we can present it as if, man, this is in the Spirit and the Lord has led me here, when in reality, maybe what's led me here is my own strength. That's terrifying. But the truth is, God knows. And the truth for you, brothers and sisters, is God knows you. There is no curated self. There is no false self when you're in the presence of God. You can pretend to be nothing because we stand before him naked and vulnerable. He knows everything there is to know about us. And then Jesus is going to say in chapter 6 and verse 4 and verse 6 and verse 18 that the God who sees in secret will reward you. I think the point of what Jesus is saying in this verse is that the life of following him is a life of hidden, quiet, secret faithfulness. The question for us is, are we willing to embrace that? Are we willing to embrace a life of hidden faithfulness where maybe no one knows? Maybe no one will ever know how much you pray. Maybe no one will ever know how many times you've read through this or how many of these chapters and verses you've memorized. Maybe no one will ever know how many people you've shared the gospel with and brought hope to someone who's otherwise completely without it. Maybe the world will never know how faithful you really are, and so you'll never get the applause here. I've heard people say that the most famous pastor in heaven will be some no-name, middle-of-nowhere, not-American pastor that no one ever heard of. He will be the one that everyone in heaven knows because he will be one that was truly, secretly faithful, quietly, steadily plowing away the call of God on his life. And so you're not fooling God when you come before him thinking you can craft the image you want him to see. It's futile to try to do that, but we're actually free to be honest about how we aren't fully mature and perfect. See how these two verses go together? If you think you need to craft your image, carefully curate the presentation you're going to give to people about who you are, you're going to go back to verse 48 and think, I need to make people think I am maybe a little more perfect than I really am. But if you're only living in the presence of God, knowing he's your father, he's already committed to love you, he's already adopted you, then you're free to go back to verse 48 and look at it Instead of a, a painting you paint of how perfect you are, look at it like a mirror that shows how far off you are from the ideal. And then you're free to come to God and say, God, you know how far I am. You know, you know I'm not perfect. You know I'm not whole. You know I'm not mature. You know the gaps in my growth. And we're free to come to the Lord and receive what he is going to talk about as a true reward. And so on this Father's Day, Jesus is talking to us from Matthew 5:48 and six, chapter 6, verse 1, about belonging to God's family. And he's talking to us about bearing the family resemblance. The call on your life to grow is a call to grow in relationship with God. It's a call to bear the family resemblance and be in that process. I, I wanna ask you this morning, do you bear the family resemblance of God? Or maybe the first question to ask is, do you belong to God's family at all? Have you recognized that the Lord has pursued you in his love and invites you to belong to him before you do anything on your own to deserve that or earn that? And then if you do belong to God's family, are you on a path to bearing the family Resemblance. Are you on a path of growth? Isn't that one of the hardest parts about having kids? It's hard to tell if they're growing, when they're growing, how they're growing, but then you have these moments of sobriety where you look back and go, look at them a year ago. Look at them five years ago. I can't believe the way physically and mentally and spiritually they've grown. Give yourself that same grace. That your maturity in Christ is a lifelong maturity. That's what Paul says in Colossians 1.28. He's talking about his ministry. That Him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What does he mean present? I think he means present them to the Lord, which would imply like death or judgment or eternity when you're in the presence of God and you say, all right, God, this is what I spent my life doing. It doesn't mean present like, hey, you have a presentation tomorrow at 8, so get on your perfection project. It means like at the end, at the end of this journey, are you on that kind of Are you on that kind of pathway where God is working in you? Don't fool yourself into thinking you need to be perfect. And then whose gaze are you living for? Whose approval are you trying to get by the way you're living? And it might not be someone that's even present in your life right now. It could have been a parent that you feel like you never measured up for them. And even now, when that parent could live hundreds or thousands of miles away, you're still living to prove to them that you're worthy of their love. It could be a friend that you lost. It could be a group of people. It could be this very church. You say, I want to be acceptable to that Shaliford crew over there. But I pray that one of the things we can do as a church family is have the kind of culture and environment where there is no standard to measure up to. The standard is honesty. That you would come just as you are. That real people would encounter the real God at this church. Not a certain kind of people. But real people. With real struggles. Real imperfections. But we can only do that if we're living for the gaze of one of God. So I pray this morning that you belong to the family of God, I pray that you're growing and bearing the family resemblance, and I pray that we're all on the path of being blessed with the family inheritance, the reward and eternity that only comes from God, and only comes from quiet faithfulness. Let's pray together. God, <clears throat> we uh, we have looked at your word today, I-, I pray we've worshiped our way through this word today, And I pray that you would work this word down into our hearts. Your word, if we'll let it, will act like a mirror to us. Not always showing us what we want to see, but showing us ourselves as we really are. And so when we look at your word this morning, God, I pray you'd give us the courage to be honest about what we see. Jesus, help us to receive your word with humility this morning to sit under its authority and let it do its perfect work in us. We know you promise us that your word will never return void. It will always accomplish that for which it's sent out. And so I pray that it would accomplish its good work in us this morning that God, we want to bear the family resemblance. We don't want to carry the burdens of following thousands of rules that we think we need to follow to belong to you. But we want to find the freedom of being adopted by you. That we can belong even before we bear the family resemblance, God. So I pray for that freedom to be felt this morning by your people. God, I pray that we would live for you and you alone. Free us from the, the shackles, God, of living for others and their applause and approval. But give us a resolve for a lifetime of hidden and quiet faithfulness to you. And I pray if there's anyone here this morning that's never placed their faith in Jesus, experienced adoption to you, that this would be the morning that they would turn towards you, repent of their sin, and receive you by faith alone pray that they wouldn't be under any illusion that it would be an easy life after that, but God, they would know that it's a life that's worth it because it's a life that includes you. I thank you so much for this church family and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. What we're going to do now as a way of responding to God's word is we're going to take the Lord's table together and uh, it is the Lord's table and so it's for him to invite. And So there's two responses for all of us this morning. One is if you don't know Jesus, you're invited this morning, not to this meal. You're invited to Jesus. And so I would ask you this morning, if you don't know him, don't come and celebrate what he's done for you if he hasn't done it for you. But instead, come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I need your body broken for me and I need your blood shed for me. Would you please save me from my sin and from myself and give me new life? that will be eternal. But if you do know Christ, then this is a moment of celebration. This is a moment of proclamation. This is a moment of remembering what Christ has done for you, where we celebrate his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And this is a moment where we look around. We do this in community, not at home by ourselves. We do this in community because this is the meal that unites us together as a church family. We watch one another take this because we recognize you too. And we celebrate that we get to belong to one another. And we get to proclaim to everyone watching that Jesus is our life. And you may say, why do we do this every week? Give me a break do this every week because I forget this every day and it builds my faith to watch you all partake of this and so I'm going to pray and we're going to have just some silence the band's not going to come up and play quite yet um, but we're just going to give everyone a chance to come and partake and then after you all get back to your seat Nathan and the team will come up and lead us in one final song this morning so let me pray God I pray uh, over this people your people that as they come and take the meal you asked us to eat together, this bread and this cup, I pray that you'd give us grace this morning. The grace of remembering, Jesus, that you have done it all. You've paid it all. So now all to you we owe. We turn our lives over to you. I pray that you'd give us the wisdom and clarity to search ourselves as we take this, confessing new all the sin in our heart, and just turning it over to you, recognizing you forgive us, not because of us, but because of what Christ has done, his body broken, his blood shed for us. Unite us together around this meal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.